welcome once again, my friends, to the Global Gale podcast. Tis Philip O'Connor here, talking to you from under about 15 feet of snow in Stockholm. And if you're listening in Sydney, you'd be going, Jesus, I don't know how they put up with it. Um, this, the winter was supposed to be over. All the snow had melted. There was a little bit of ice left hanging around. But no, be jeez, this morning now, this week, it has been pounding down. Just having a look out the window there. It seems to be falling off just a little bit, but there are huge snow drifts out there. So I hope that cools you down if you're down below in the Southern Hemisphere. And I hope that if you're listening up here in the Northern Hemisphere, that you're thinking to yourself, well, sure, Jesus, it could be worse. Better days are coming. And of course, we are now coming into the greatest week of the year for the Irish communities around the world. Because on Saturday next, or is it Friday next? Friday next. Uh, it is, of course, St. Patrick's Day. And for those of us who live abroad, there's no bank holiday. We'll just have to do the best we can with that. In certain small towns like New York and Chicago and that kind of place, we'll close the place down anyway, lads. And we'll have the parade. I hope you are set up and that you're ready to go for uh, whatever it is you're going to be doing and however it is you're going to be celebrating. Uh, here in Sweden, there's going to be two parades this year. One is in Stockholm and the other is down below in Malmö. And if you want to hear more about them, uh, listen in on Monday's show because uh, there'll be a load of stuff for the Irish in Sweden on the Irish in Sweden podcast. Now, as you may have noticed, and as indeed you just heard there, the Global Gale goes on the Arrowman in Stockholm feed. You get this podcast, you get the Irish in Sweden podcast, you get Premier Swedes, Nicholas Alexanderson, who used to play for Everton and West Ham, will be coming up there shortly. And you'll get the Arrowman in Stockholm podcast on, uh, on there as well. It's all free, but if you can support the show... Uh, please go to patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm and throw in a fiver a month, lads, right? Because uh, I was only looking at it there. It's the 10th anniversary of the second captains this week. So when they left News Talk, it's a sports podcast a lot of Irish people around the world would be listening to. And they left News Talk and then they went and they did, you know, podcast elsewhere. They were at the Irish Times for a while. But then they went to, to Patreon. And I was actually chatting with Blind Boy Boat Club there on, on Twitter about it recently as well. How important it is to have sort of, you know, an independent outlet there where we're not dependent on the Irish Times or an RT or that kind of thing because let's face it um, I do what I like to call public service podcasting. RTE aren't going to do it. I've been told before that they don't care really about the Irish abroad, that everybody switches off when they listen to it. But I do, and we do as an Irish community, and so there's only about 70 million of us. So if you can throw in a five or a month there at patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm. Now, I'll shoot myself in the foot again, lads, right? It'll always be free. These podcasts will always be free. But... It's on what Brian Boy calls the soundness model. I need just to get in there. If you have the price of a coffee or a pint every month uh, over, I need just to get in there and throw it in. Specifically because certain people don't. And many of us were that person back in the day. I know 20, 25 years ago, or 24 years ago when I moved to Sweden, I didn't have that money for the first couple of years because it took me a long time to get going. So those who can't afford to pay, it's great if you can do so. Those who can't, it's there for you anyway. Because But money should never be a barrier to being part of our wonderful, our glorious, our talented, our handsome and beautiful Irish community around the world. People who are contributing to that community are doing so in so many ways. And there'll be loads of great stories this week, no matter where you are in the world. If you're on LinkedIn, 
Facebook, if you're wherever you are, and indeed the six o'clock news as well next week on St. Patrick's Day when they go to the, the parades around Ireland and around the world. But there's loads of great stories, I'm sure, in your local area about Irish-owned businesses, about sports stars. But this week's episode is going to concentrate a little bit on the arts, right? This week's episode is going to take us to an event that happened recently in London. And I'll tell you the background to it, right? I got an email there a little while ago from a man named John Merrigan. And I thought, yeah, this this sounds interesting, right? And it's fascinating uh, to, to hear the kind of things that people are up to. So John emailed me anyway, and together with uh, his partner, Danielle, they have written a, a show called Brendan, Son of Dublin, about the Irish writer Brendan Behan. Now, this is the 100th anniversary. 2023 is the 100th anniversary of Brendan Behan's birth, right? That's not to say that that's a reason to celebrate, because Bean is one of those characters, one of those people, one of those Irish figures that is absolutely timeless. He was, you know, hugely famous when I was growing up. He was hugely relevant when I was growing up, and he is still so today, right? So I sat down for a chat with, with John and with Danielle about it. John writes the words, Danielle writes the music. They're an amazing couple, an amazing pair altogether, extremely talented. And after the interview was over, well, I think we talked for as nearly long, uh, nearly as long again about art and about creativity and about Irishness and about being and that kind of thing. But first of all, we did this interview to talk about the show. They did a, pr- a production of it in London at the Irish Cultural Centre there just to present the idea for people, right? And now what they're looking for is a way of bringing this show around the world, right? And there are many ways of doing it. Obviously, they would have to get the actors over and there's flights and there's accommodation and everything else like that, right? But no more than taking a band on tour. These things have to be possible, lads. So if you're in any way involved in theatre in Chicago, in Sydney, in Kuala Lumpur, in Stockholm, if you have a load of money that's burning a hole in your pocket and you don't feel like giving it to Philip O'Connor at patreon.com or our man in Stockholm patreon.com, maybe you might consider getting in touch with John and Daniel and seeing if you can do something with them to bring that show over because again in particular this time of the year but really at any time of the year we've seen it uh, with the Hollywood movies I was talking to Luke McManus about recently that these stories that are, that are our stories and that are things that we can relate to are always necessary and are always welcome and are always very enjoyable when they're put to people right so uh, we'll finish off maybe with a little song that Danielle has written for this particular show but let's kick off I suppose with the interview with John Merrigan and with Danielle about the show Brendan, Son of Dublin and how it came to be and what's next for it. I suppose the obvious place to start, John and Danielle, is why Brendan Behan of all Irish writers? Why him to write a show about? Well, I think he's the most for one of the word, the most edgy at the minute. Um, and I just think the minute you mention his name, people will react <laughs> one way or another. And I think if you can get a reaction, then then you've got a good you've got a good place to start. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you something else as well. Um, last year we did uh, we did a play about Oscar Wilde, uh, which was called Vengeance, and we took that on tour around, and there was a huge uh, interest. And then you start looking around, you know, among Irish authors and uh, it's not long before you bump into Oscar Wilde, sorry, you bump into Brendan Behan and you realise the similarities. And the, the way we, we, uh, we sort of connected as well with Brendan was 
um, is to explore his uh, his story. And the more we got into researching about his story, the more excited we got about uh, finding a way to tell it in a, in a new way. And um, so we just got drawn in and drawn in. And, um, you know, you could write 10 plays about Brendan Bean and not still tell the full story. John, I'm just guessing that the two of you have, because of your backgrounds, you're bound to have very different relationships to Bean, how you discovered Bean and how he came into your, your lives. So maybe do you remember reading him as, as a young man or as somebody going to school in Ireland? I remember growing up in, in my house in Dublin uh, on the north side, like like Brendan, um, and my mum knew Brendan Bean, and she worked in and around Grafton Street. And she was always telling us stories um, uh, about, you know, meeting up with him or encountering him. And, you know, he wasn't always in the best state, as they as they used to say. But she was always full of stories. And there were always quotes and there was always discussion uh, in the house talking about him. And, you know, he, he was always there. And actually, very recently, um, we, we were clearing out my dad's house. My dad passed away uh, last year. We were clearing out the house recently. And the amount of books that we found on Brendan Bean was unbelievable. I think we found about 20 books on him. And so it's no wonder, you know, that uh, he was in the air and uh, and so on. But, but Danny, you'll have had a different uh, yeah, experience. Yeah, I've definitely experienced that. My family from Tipperary um, and... You know, I grew up, my dad's from the East End, so I grew up in the East End. And uh, let's just say a drink in amongst my family was, was you know, well known. So, um, and then, you know, the, the I've always, because of Ireland and, and my family and my relationship growing up, I've always had a soft spot for Brendan um, because, you know, he liked to sing and he was... He wasn't what we call bling bling, you know. He was just raw, um, and so what you see is what you got. Um, and you know, he lived the life. And then drawing on from the side of the East End with the Theatre Royal and all that went with that. Um, and then when John mentioned it, I sort of said, "Oh, Brendan Bean, really?" You know, because it's not an easy topic. It's a great topic, but. It's not an easy one. And the, the more I was like, I'm not sure. John was like, this is great. This is great. It's taking out your comfort zone. Um, it's going to get a reaction. And he said, literally, look, I'm going to knock up a script. Can you knock up a few songs? And we'll see what we've got at the end. And I was like, all right, find a script. I'll do some songs. And if it's any good, you know, we'll look to develop it. And it was all right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and... Yeah, and the more you know about Brendan and the more you learn, the more you come to, look, no one's perfect, right? We've all we've all got a life story. We've all said and done stupid things, but a fabulous talent and, you know, a man of, a, of amazing depth um, and emotion and to be able to bring him to the stage um, and get a reaction, good or bad, I think, I think that's a job well done. Mm -hmm. I think what appealed to me when when John first spoke to me or said or mailed me about this and like as I said the bells just go off in my head straight away for being because in one way there's a straight line from being to Shane McGowan to the East End and Big there's time. also the tentacles then that spread out through North Dublin where John and I are from 
But I find myself to this day, I was talking to a young man recently. He has a podcast about books and he asked me what my favorite book was. And I said, Borstal Boy. And I only realized how many things that book taught me at different points in my life. Mm. That You know, when I read it as a teenager first, it said one thing. When I read it five years later, and it keeps fucking telling me more and more things. But John, you mentioned finding those books in your father's house. And I'm sorry to hear that he passed recently. Mm. How do you tell Brendan's story in a new way? Because as both of you have said, it's something that we all know, but we don't really know at all. Well, well, exactly, and I think I think this was this was also accounts for the if you like um, the caution we approach the topic because Brendan's story has been told a hundred times more, you know, in so many different ways. And what you're trying to do is to find a different angle into it. And the way that we write um, our plays, we've written a number of plays now about uh, you know historic figures, literary figures. And there's a couple of things that we've found that work to tell the story differently. Firstly, it's the addition of music. And um, uh, there's not many plays done about Brendan, which include, you know, new original songs that are, are there. And we use music as a device. Um, you know, musicals normally, they, they sort of drive the action forward and everything else. We use music almost to stop the action and to give the people in the audience a chance to absorb what they've just learned or what they've just seen. So we'll talk more about that in a second. The second um, thing is that we always see that the people around these characters, as well as the characters themselves, the people around them are fascinating people. You know, to, to breathe the air of uh, Brendan Bean and to survive around them, you had to be of some substance yourself. So if you look at his wife, Beatrice, she was an amazing lady. She was an artist. She was educated. She was well got, as we say, in Dublin. And um, so she she was a very, very strong lady that was around him. And then another lady that we explore very closely and in depth was his relationship with Joan Littlewood, um, uh, who was, a, you know, ran the, the theatre workshop in the East End and was, was responsible for, you know, whole host of famous uh, actors, um, you know, at the time. And she saw something in Brendan and she developed and convinced him um, the way forward. And she went all over the world with him, you know, as a director and, and working with him on the show. So that was that. Was that. Um, and then there was, you know, um, his parents, um, uh, uh, Kathleen and, um, and Stephen, again, strong people, etc. So I think exploring the characters around him is a new way into the story. And uh, we're also making that more, more rounded, I think, in the story. Sometimes I think when Irish people are looking at Brendan Bean, um, they look at him in a very particular way, you know, because he's romanticised or he's... And, you know, opinion can be divided on him. He's, he's, in some ways, people either love him or hate him as a character. So I think bringing in characters and bringing in events that happened outside of Ireland involving Brendan, that also brings a, a fresh kind of perspective and what other people thought about him. And that's important because his literary legacy is very important. And it's not just measured in terms of Ireland. It's global. It's international. His plays are performed all over the world. His talent is recognised all over the world. And people take from Brendan something very different. You talked about it. You, you see him differently in different ages as you grow older. People also see him in different ways 
in terms of nationalistic things, you know, pride in your country, fighting for a cause, etc. Or they see him as a young man and how he was affected by, you know, the prison system and so on, um, and how he was how he was able to turn that into a positive force to to tell the story, to tell things and the reality of these things. And he had a profound influence on, you know, the reform of the penal system, for example, in England, or uh, the abolition of uh, the death penalty, which happened in the early 60s in England, and so on. So his influence can be measured in different ways, depending on the lens, you know, that you use to see it. And I hope and I'm sure, based on the reaction that we've got, we're bringing those different lenses in a way that's, uh, I think, hopefully a bit broader and a bit different. And then with the addition of the music, um, we think it's uh, we think it's very, you know, it's a different treatment of a story. We'll put it like that. Danny, you've written some of the songs from the perspective of some of the characters in Brendan's life which I found utterly unique. I've never found, I found other people writing about him who knew him and that kind of thing, but I've never found something with this of the emotional depth that you brought to it. How did you sort of put yourself in their shoes when you sat down to write those songs? And is that what you were trying to do or did it just come to you in that way? So with when I write, initially when I started writing, um, I write for my own therapy, if that makes any sense. I was never, I never, never sit down to write for other people. Um, I just don't believe in that. I believe it's it's something you create, and and if you like it, that's great. And if others don't, it doesn't matter. Um, and what I tend to do is, when John has an idea of a personal script, I tend to, at the beginning stages, the very beginning stages, I tend to not go too deep into their backstory. And the reason I don't want to go too deep is because inadvertently we do judge. You know, we hear things, we see things, rightly, wrongly, true or false, and we make judgments. And I don't want to judge, and I'm not, my job isn't to convince an audience about a character, whether we love that character or not. My job is to basically enforce an emotion, be it anger, laughter, um, pain, grief, and get the audience to react. And the only way I can do that is to take literally, like you said, like a subtext of, What's going on? You know, he liked to drink. He had a few arguments with his missus. He played away from home. Blah, blah, blah. I don't get too too deep in what, what people's backstory is. And then what I'll try and do is I'll try and build an emotion around that based on a very basic brief. And then I'll say to John, right, I need you to look at that. It, it could be historically. It could be like a date could be wrong or uh, a location could be wrong. And then John will go, right, okay. We need a few more, you know, street names or landmarks. Or da, da, da. So right, give me a list. Give me a few bits and pieces, almost like a brainstorming session. He'll give it to me. And I'll, and I'll just sort of work out what will sort of fit with uh, what I call holding lyrics. John will listen and he'll go, yes, no, feeling that vibe. We could change an instrument here. We could do that. And then we'll get what we call like an 80% rough demo, 75, 80%, where we've got the gubbins of a song um, and then we might go as the story evolves as the script, right? I mean, what you're on script 23, 24. Mm. So as the script evolves, the lyrics might, what we call get a little bit deeper, a little bit more sophisticated and on an audience's reviews or audience's reaction, we may change a few things and we just sort of build it, but we have what we call our cake and mm. then we'll put the sprinkles and the icing on and, but we won't change the buttercream, you know, we won't change the ingredients, but we might change 
the external part. That's roughly, roughly how we do it. But if you said to me, sit down now and write X amount of songs, I wouldn't be able to do it. But if we had a chat, I'd probably come out with 20, you know, within two weeks. But it, it can't be a commercial thing. It has to be a, a yeah. raw thing. And, and the other thing that I'd say about what happened with the music, Danny writes, you know, we can be sitting around the table uh, having dinner or something. And she'll just say, give me 10 minutes. And literally she'll go out. We have a small little studio at the back of the house. And she'll go out. And in half an hour, she'll call me and said, I think I've got something. And she'll have a verse, a chorus, a riff, um, uh, lyrics or whatever in half an hour. And that's what happened with Brendan. And that's also what happened with the writing process. It was kind of the writing of it came at the end of just, I suppose, a lifetime absorbing him and, um, and a, a bit of research. Um, and talking to people who knew him and all the rest of it, it came very quickly, um, the actual writing part of it. And even though we're on different versions now, that's been through the rehearsals, that's been through some of the actors playing, you know, with the words and giving them the latitude to do that. And and so we are where we are now. So it comes very naturally. It's not forced. No, think, and I think yeah. that it's been proven. When we tried it, we did it with a World War One thing with Irish heroes and we did it with Oscar and stuff. What's been proven with us in our day-to-day music and songwriting and our shows is that if we, for want of a better, if we're not chasing fame and we're not chasing commercial success and we're not chasing um, a technique, we're just writing raw from our soul and from our heart and emotion, funny enough, most people, 99% of people are human, they're, they're, they get those emotions, they get that. And then once the audience connect with you, it without saying anything untoward, it doesn't matter what the right way or the hierarchy or what what everything is taught. If you've got your audience that connect with a piece of work, then that's all you need. And then and then it just builds from there. And I think if you if you stay humble and ethical and you work hard and you connect with people that like what you're doing and believe in what you're doing then it just sort of has a gentle snowball effect, really, I I suppose, in a mad way. It's fascinating to hear you talk about the process because I wrote a couple of novels in the Swedish language with a young guy from Hoosby, which is near where I live here, never written anything before. And the first one was like a tennis match. I'd write something and fire it over the net to him. Then he'd write something and throw it back. And I'd say, no, I need you to do this and it would go back. And that process worked really, really well. But the second book that we wrote, and it was the same characters, the same setup and that kind of thing, on a four-hour drive from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, we basically got everything down. And that was it. It was like what John was saying there, that that was the beginning of it. And your songs are the beginning of it. And after that, I've always found that the story will tell you what it wants. It will tell you where it wants to go after that. The people in it will tell you who they are. But at the same time, you have a responsibility because the people that me and this guy Hyder wrote about, they were made up, right? But you have historical figures. You have people. This is where the stress comes, Philip. (laughs) And I keep saying, why are we doing this? Why... We could knock up a show and a full-blown musical in a few weeks, this fiction. Why are we doing this? Because we have to get historians, dramaturgs, we have to get families involved, we have to cross-check it. And I'm like, this is so stressful. Well, you know, we had, we had one, <laughs> one, one great example of this. We've been very lucky to uh, to get on board Janet Bean. Um, um, uh, you know, she was uh, in the cast, but she's the niece of Brendan. And she, in the play, actually plays um, uh, Joan Littlewood. 
And firstly, that's interesting for her because she's not playing a being, you know. So she's 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 playing a character that was Rembrandt. But the the point I was going to make was um, when you're talking with someone like that, so a member of the family, um, you really have to be on your game, and you have to you have to really present the story, which is you know kind of as it happened. Now, interestingly. It doesn't mean you're always going to agree because there's a certain amount of subjectivity. You know, an event happened and you can you can interpret it uh, one way or another. But what it does mean is that we're very lucky to have that um, that that input, if you like, into the creative process. Um, and then that's all put in with everything else. But we I, I think you make a great point, Philip, is that almost it gets to a point where the story writes itself. And if you find a way in and you're able to tell the story from a certain perspective or a certain way, it, it's very easy. And, and, and it's not, we don't find, we, we find it um, difficult from the point of view of the responsibility that you have to tell the story properly, but it's not hard from the writing of it. Um, and and in a way that's fantastic. I'd rather have it that way than the other way around. Um, and uh, so it's just a pleasure to tell this story. And that uh, that th that there are so many different ways of telling the story. And this is our interpretation of the life of of a man who who continues to impact us today. You know. So like other things will happen. Like um, I wrote a song, and it should have been at the end of Act Two, and it. It is a duet between Brendan and Joan. And it's basically inadvertently, Brendan's, um, I'm not sure if he was in the process of passing away, but it was sort of like separate staging of them both sort of telling a story and coming together. And somehow it the whole meaning of that song got missed. Um, and it and I was like, it's a duet. And everyone's like, what? And I'm like, has no one looked at the lyrics? Like, this is a duet, this is a reflection. Like, no, 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 it goes at the start of Act 2. And I'm like, they can't go at the start of Act 2 it because it's telling a story. And they're like, yeah, but we're not doing musical theatre where it makes the plot. And I'm like, yeah, but actually, at this particular point, it does. And I'm not going to name any names, but people's like, no, no, we love the title Queen of Stratford and we'll just have to make it work. And I said to John, this is not working. It's all out of sync. You can change the lyrics, but the vibe of the song, and everyone's like, no, it's great, leave it, leave it, it's great. And I'm like, it just feels weird, it feels wrong. And then John and I were just vibing one night um, and I said, I'm going to write something different. Um, and it turned into a jazz piece and it turned into, oh, give me one second, our child is gate crushing our interview. Mom, mom. <laughs> we have a four-year-old daughter who, uh, this is rock and roll. The, the, so this is, this is what happens when you have you up. While, while Danny goes on crowd control there, John, yeah. um, maybe what she's absent there, we might look at act one, scene one, what story, because as you mentioned yourself there, your mother has her stories of Brendan Bean as does half of Dublin and half of Paris and London. What story did you end up telling? At what point in his life do we join Brendan Bean? And what parts of his life does your story cover? So we, we end up, uh, we start at the point of uh, his last day on Mother Earth. And he's in the hospital, um, the St. James's Hospital, the Meath Hospital, excuse me, the Meath Hospital. And he's um, he's uh, woken up thinking this is a great day. And we have created a character 
um, called the City of Dublin, who is a, a virtual, if you like, the spirit of the City of Dublin and, and incarnate or whatever. And the City of Dublin turns around to him and says, I've some good news and I've some bad news for you. And, and so they kind of very quickly get into the fact that today is his last day. And he engages with the audience because Dublin says, look out there in front of you. There's a whole load of people that want to hear your story before you go. And now is your chance to tell it. And, uh, and that way, you're engaging the audience completely very, very early on in the story. And when we performed the, 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 the show at the Irish Cultural Centre in Hammersmith, that was just that was the moment when I said, wow, we've actually this works. We've got them and they're engaged. And uh, it, it from then on in, the whole audience was engaged and hooked and so on. So starting from his last day and we kind of rounded off and we finish on his last day. So the arc of his story has a nice kind of symmetry to it. Um, don't want to give too much away because there's some nice little twists and turns um, uh, along the way. But yeah, that's where he starts, you know, um, on um, uh, on a cold March day um, in, in Dublin uh, in 1964, um, just on his last day. And lots of people will say, and again, we're not going to say numbers, oh, what, why don't you start in a hospital bed? Why don't you start here? And the thing is, that's been done. All of this stuff has been done so many times or the quotes that he says or the certain things. And you just think everybody's done that. Why, why keep repeating that? Um, so John found a different angle. It's not to say that what we're doing is right and everybody else is wrong. It's just like, there's no, we don't need to keep doing what's already been done. It's been done and what they've done was incredible. And, and now we're just trying a different angle on, on somebody that's, how many times you tell the story of Brendan yeah. Bean without it becoming samey. So um, a lot of people loved it and a lot of people went in expecting Brendanisms and all that went with it and was quite surprised when they were like, oh, actually, oh, there's more to him than that. Oh, actually, we didn't realise that and we learnt that and, oh, wow, I, we didn't actually know that because they came in with almost a stereotypical view of, you know, what's on Google um, and actually left learning and wanting to know more about Brendan, which, again, was a, that's our job was, done was, was yeah. a good thing as well. Yeah. I think when we were growing up, John, and you too, Danny, obviously, it was Neil Tobin was the man who was Brendan Bean. He used to play yeah. him in, in all the stage plays, and whenever he was necessary on TV, he was sort of trotted out. And it gave us a sort of a, like a very, you know, in one way rounded, but also quite a one-dimensional view of Brendan. What did this process of writing this this piece of theatre, what did that teach you, Per, about him that you didn't already know about Brendan or about his work? Well, there, there was a couple of things that, that I'd say, and I think what what has also um, uh, driven us with this is, is not to be like the Neil Tobin um, kind of version, uh, uh, you know, of, of him. And that's no disrespect to Neil, but we have to find another way. And one of the things... Um, when we landed on the casting of this, we, we we spent a great deal of time thinking about the casting. And I'll get to your question, but the casting is part of the answer. Um, when we approached Dara O'Malley, who was our first choice uh, to do this um, thing, you know, Dara is not 41. Brendan died when he was 41. And Dara is is older than that. And what you actually find is that when Dara plays him, 
Brendan is kind of ageless. And what I mean by that is he, he, he is ageless in terms of how he looked, how he felt, etc. And honestly speaking, we reached the conclusion that a 41-year-old person wouldn't have the life experience or the maturity, in a way, to play Brendan. He almost lived two lives in his 41 years. And, and that's what we learn about him, because when you actually look at, at his life story, the bare facts, um, yeah, some of that was known. Um, I, I, we, we found out more about, you know, what happened to him in Borstal, you know, and his relationship with Governor Joyce. That was something that was very important there, and that was very formative for him. Governor Joyce, again, saw something in, in the young uh, uh, Brendan and supported him. Uh, his bisexuality um, and, uh, and, and all of that, uh, and how he dealt with that and how he, he he did that. I think the other big thing, the other big thing that was very formative for him was um, his relationship with Joan Littlewood. This was a landmark thing. And to be fair, in a lot of the Irish treatments of his life story, it's not given prominence. It's, 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 it's relatively speaking in the background. But actually, if you look at his work and the impact of bringing his work to a world stage, that was one of the most important events that happened. And they, th their relationship and how they developed that relationship and a trust between the two of them made it a very special thing. So they were some of the things that I learned. I don't know if you learned yeah, other what, things. What like. I learned from him is that, look, he's done things, he's had a past, he's been a bit of a naughty boy. I'm not condoning his behaviour. I'm not going out and, you know, championing him and saying, you forgive him, you know, what he did and all this. Look, he's done what he's done, but I have a soft spot for him because he was honest. He was a, I can't really swear, can I? But he was, can I swear? Go ahead, you may as well. He was a bollocks, right? We know that. But but we all know somebody like that. And he was a chancer, he was cheeky, he was talented. I don't think he probably realised how talented he was. He was lovable, he was a lovable rogue. You know, in one point in the show and, and, in, and in truth, he turned around to his wife and said, look, I'm not an accountant. You knew I'm not, you knew when you married me, I wasn't an accountant. Um, and everybody loves a bad boy. Everybody don't, you know, people don't want shepherd's pie on a Tuesday and go to mass on a Sunday. Like, they want something a bit edgy. And Brendan was edgy and he took a chance and he did things that some people only dream of. Um, some were great decisions, some were really bad decisions, but he still had, he's got a story. And if he hadn't have made those decisions, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about him. I think you raised an important point there, the courage of the man, you know, in context of, you know, 1950s Ireland, uh, the things that he was writing about and the way he put them out there raw. Um, the second thing, leaving Ireland and having the courage, you know, he was traveling all over the world at a point where there were still hay carts and, you know, horses on the road in Ireland. And I don't mean that in a negative way. He was really brave and wanted to explore the world and see the world. You know, he went to America regularly. He went to Europe and to Paris, uh, to Berlin, to Stockholm, um, you know, all of these places. He was an internationalist at a time when people were very insular. So he was brave. He wanted to explore. He he was curious about the world. And, uh, you know, you hear lots of stories with him connecting with people locally, you know, in New York or in Stockholm or in Paris or whatever. He had this gift 
and an insight and an empathy with people from whatever background or culture. And obviously that translated into his work. So I think when you find out those stories and you realize, you realize what, in a way, an outsider he was compared to the convention and to compare it to where he grew up in Russell Street. And he deserves great credit, uh, I think, for having the, 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 the guts and the, 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 the courage to go and do that, despite, you know, the, the, the hooks that were in him being brawn, bread and buttered in Dublin. You know and, what I mean? And he was human and he wasn't afraid to put his hands up and say, look, I messed up. I, you know, I really messed up. And there's not many people, you know, out there now that are willing to go and put their career and their job and go, look, I really cocked that up. That was stupid. Um, and, it, you know, if somebody's honest and they put their hands up and say, look, I don't, I don't agree with what I've done. I know I was wrong and I was an idiot whatever you can't help but go okay well you know what are you going to do next mm. you know because these people excite you and and you want to know what they're going to do next and i mean if it had lived god only knows what he would have achieved yeah. um it'd probably be still be in prison or something oh, don't really, don't <laughs> stupid again but um yeah i mean he he, he had a life and yeah. a life that people want to write about a life that people want to uh, you know, bring to the film, bring to documentaries, bring to books, write songs about the man. You know, it's um, so obviously he's got something. We're not the only ones that, um, are, you know, are, are turned on by by Brendan being story. One of the things that always struck me is interesting about Borstal Boy, and it's one of the things that's kind of absent when we as as Irish or second or third generation Irish people speak about him, is a, it's very clear from Borstal Boy what Brendan's politics were, not just as an Irish Republican, but also as a very, very strong socialist. And indeed, Stephen being his father was a strong, so was his mother, so was his grandmother. That has kind of been whitewashed out of Brendan's story. Is that something that comes up in, in the way you tell your story or did you decide to, to take an, a, a different path so to speak no we, we we've included we've included uh his is the, the social thing and and it comes out in a number of places firstly in his experience in borsal boy he does a monologue in our play um after borsal boy you know telling that phase of the story and one of the things he talks about is the reform of the prison system and and basically alludes to the point to say the reform was needed outside the prison walls, not inside the prison walls. So he touches on it there. And then secondly, another place he touches on it is in his relationship with John Littlewood, because she was very socialist and she was trying to bring real issues to the table and portray them in the theatre there. And she took great chances, you know, even to the extent that her funding was cut and all sorts of things. And she she had a bravery as well. So there was an immediate bond between the two of them when they wanted to tell um, uh, issues of the day. They wanted to discuss those things and get them out there and not just, you know, do Noel Coward and sort of, you know, afternoon tea and stuff like that, which was very much the dominant kind of uh, force in theatre at the time. And because of that, they have made a lasting legacy. Um, and and because they were brave, they they were able to get things. You know, John Little did Littlewood did. Oh, what a lovely war! An anti-war thing. And she was very much a, into the working class and making the theatre accessible. And she was fighting an uphill battle at the time. 
And then along comes Brendan Bean, you know, with the queer fellow. And we have a scene where she first reads the queer fellow and the impact, you know, she just went, my God, this is this is the one. This is the one we can tell a story. And I think uh, I think Brendan's socialist um, uh, and the impact on wider society and the themes he was trying to talk about and representing the ordinary person and the things that concern them. That comes through, uh, we hope, uh, in in um, you know in the show, in the music, and in the in the discussions that happen with the characters. So yeah, we're, we haven't been afraid to 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 raise those issues. Um, and of course, one of the things that drove us is we want to raise issues in such a way to to, to make the very clear point that Brendan Bean is very relevant today. This is the point. The things that he was dealing with, you know, if you talk about how fame can destroy creativity. You talk about people's um, uh, journey where they understand their sexuality or how they're different, how they cope with that. When they look at um, social issues, uh, when they look at the the role of theatre, when they look at how they are judged by people in their own town. You know, this is another thing because Brendan left, etc. So these themes are really front and centre in the way that we're trying to tell the story. And we're not, we make no no bones about that. We want to make him relevant um, today. And to be honest with you, it was very easy once you start to write down, you know, those things. Danny, when you look at somebody like Brendan and, you know, in your growing up there in the East End, we have this kind of idea from watching soap operas on the telly that everybody's like a little bit Thatcherite in that part of the city and that, you know, everybody's a trader, everybody's a Dell boy kind of thing. What were the cultural, what were the political influences that would have led you to gra- gravitate towards somebody like Bean? Or was it, you know, the total opposite, that there was none of that, that he filled a vacuum in that part of your upbringing? But to be fair, because of how I grew up, because of my family, my mum and all of that side of the family are Irish, I grew up in a, in a, I spent so much time in Ireland that I was literally, because I'm an expat now myself, you know, I've travelled and I've lived in different countries or whatever, and our kids are expats. I just felt that I was in this world of um, stuff from my dad. Um, my mum's side was very dominant and still are. Um, and, and that was that. You know, um, and in terms of all the bullet and there would certainly be topics when I got to around about 14, 15 and I'd go and speak to my dad and he'd go. Ooh, and I'd go to my mum, I'll go, don't don't even go there, you know, and there were so many. And then when I go home to Ireland and ask questions, they'd be like, don't even ask this, you know. So um, and I was very much told, you know, um, mind your business. Um, you know, it's not for children's ears or whatever. And and. I was sort of protected, really, I suppose, you know, because you didn't have the internet, um, you, you you didn't have free access to TV. You know, I, I wasn't allowed to uh, just go and put the telly on. Um, if the news come on, it was normally turned off if I was around. So um, I wasn't exposed. I was only really exposed to, I suppose, what my parents showed me, um, school. But most of the time in school, Growing up in the East End, you were sort of fighting to stay alive, really. Um, so it, it, I didn't really get, you know, we knew there was recession. We knew there was other stuff. But my way out was music and my way out was theatre. Um, and I recognised very early on that I was different from a lot of my friends. Um, 
And then I found other friends with different cultures and different beliefs or whatever. And, you know, a lot of my family all were originally in North London because, again, I don't need to tell you the politics about that. So ended up in the East End. There wasn't many at that time Irish people and Irish cultures and stuff. So I was up a little bit sort of, yeah, you know, it's so I have my own battles going on, if that makes any sense of yeah. that cross-cultural well, that's it. Where you're, kind of, you're kind of there with a foot in both camps, right? And yet, yeah. you know, you're not really armed with the knowledge because maybe our parents and our aunts and our uncles try to they try to shield those things from us because they're complicated things and there's no easy answers and sometimes there's no answers at all. I kind of struggle with that in terms of my own children. And what do you tell your own children about? Uh, the, about the troubles, about everything that happened. What do you tell exactly. them was, you know, what do you tell them about Brendan going over at the age of 14 or 15 with a bomb in his pocket to Liverpool? Right. You know, how do you explain these things? And yet it would seem to me that art and the theatre and that music are the best way to do these things because what you're doing, Danny, in your songs, what you're doing, John, in your writing is you're communicating not necessarily just historical fact or not even historical fact, but emotion which is complex. And we accept that it's not clean. It's not, this is how you're supposed to feel right now. Because I'd imagine that there's people who've seen your show in the Irish Cultural Centre there and who maybe didn't feel the way that you expected or wanted them to feel at the end of it, you know? What was the response like? Because, John, you contacted me before that happened and I was desperately keen to make it over, but I couldn't make it over. It was a reading of the show, what you call a fully rehearsed reading of the show, What was the reaction afterwards? Okay, you mentioned the first song, everybody just went, well, and you had them at that point. But afterwards, when they spoke to you in the lobby, maybe having some canapes and a glass of wine or a pint of stout, what Mm. did they tell you? It was very much a pint of stout. And a packet of tatoes. And there was no canapes. And we made sure that was... There was tatoes canapes. On a little white serviette. But I tell you what, one of the things that... Um, when you're bringing a topic like Brendan to 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 any audience, and but especially an audience who have certain amount of knowledge, and a certain amount of knowledge is a dangerous thing, because it's all full of preconceptions and everything else. And what when you're trying to you're trying to tell the story, um, you're just waiting to see what the reaction. So after the show, the reaction was absolutely mind blowing, and it was universal. It was it was one of what a story. What an interesting uh, guy. I I learned something. I was educated. I was made feel, you know, we had uh, one very well-known critic who I won't mention the name, but we, we didn't bring many critics. You don't want to bring them to a reading because, you know, you know, you don't know how it'll go. But a couple of critics did come along and this critics was said, you made me laugh. You made me cry. You made me happy. You made me sad in the space of, you know, five minutes in one phase of the play. And 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 that's that's uh, when you know you've got something. Because like you said, you know, our version, or certainly the version of history that I was taught growing up was all about facts. You know, Henry VIII, here's dates, that's it, and everything else. And, and there's no sense of the emotion. And the question I always ask was, when Anne Boleyn was being, you know, executed in the day, what did Henry do? What did he feel? What did he, what did he, you know, was he guilty? Was he this, that and the other? And what we then do is when we turn that into our writing, what we want to say is, you know, when Brendan Bean um, was in Borstal 
We know he was there from the dates. We know he did certain things. But what did he feel? What did he learn about himself? What did he, uh, what, how were his eyes opened? And you're trying to explore that. And, and ultimately what that means is you're, you're just bringing information, you're bringing emotions, you're bringing things to the table. And then you let the audience decide for themselves. You're not trying to say, I, you know, I necessarily want you to feel this, but I want, I want to get an emotion one way or the other. I don't want no emotion. If, if that's what I want. But you can either feel happy or sad or whatever. And if we can succeed in doing that, and we definitely did from the reaction, it, that, that is, that's what we're trying to achieve. Let people make their own minds up, um, but at least give them something that they didn't expect. At least give them some new emotion, some new feeling or some new insight that they didn't expect from the convention. And uh, when we did that, I think people, because they were engaged and because they were on board with the way we were telling the story, I think they loved it. I, I really do. And, and you know, we, we had 180 people there in the auditorium and on, 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 a, on a place where we should have only had 50. And, um, you know, it was absolutely magic. And uh, the atmosphere at the end, we got a standing ovation at the end of it. Everybody stood up and spontaneous and you know Irish people don't generally do that and, and English people and Christians and we had all sorts of range of people there and it got very emotional I think you know yeah. for us what happened and what John and I do is that look we just bring our work we put it out there and if you like it great and we turn up and we didn't have loads of expectation you know the ICC has been good to us and we had no expectation on the on the day itself. Our car got broken into, and all of our stuff got nicked for the show that night. Our toiletries, our clothes, everything. So we were just like a bit caught in in the headlights, really. And we turned up on the stage, and we thanked people for coming, and we just look. We hope you're going to like our work, and 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 that was it, really. And at the end, it was literally like being in the audience at Wembley, you know, someone going off and someone going, "Well, go on in, talk out, um, and scoring a goal." And everyone's like, and at the end, we were just like, oh, my God, they they love it. They were laughing. They were crying. And John and I were just looking at each other going, we've written this. Oh, my God. Because you just expect people to go, oh, that was a load of old shy, you know, (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) Or I don't get that. Or what did you mean by that? Or where are you coming from? And we're just sitting there like, oh, my God, because you don't know what you, you don't know if anyone's going to turn up. You know, you just, you just, and and at the end, we're just like, oh my god, and it was like a whirlwind, and, and we're still trying to absorb that it could have gone the other way. They could have hated it. Do you know what I mean? Um, but they loved it, and and it's it's an incredible feeling to think, like John said, an idea that's in your head and on a piece of paper, you know, and then you bring it, and it's just John and I, and then all of a sudden people are loving it, and you're like, oh, okay, that's great, thanks very much. <laughs> when you were there, Danny, and specifically as as somebody who created the music for this, because words are one thing, but creating the music for this, did you perform the music yourself that night? I did in the end, and what I mean by that is we had a great musical director that we handed everything over to, but um, due to things going a little bit belly up. Um, and me not being there at rehearsals because the car being broken into and stuff like that, um, I sort of ended up running on at the end to sort of help out in terms of the harmonies and what we should have been doing. And, and we ended up doing a play-out song um, that would have, 
that we will have if we have a big ensemble and we have a band and everything just to show people what it could be. And they wasn't meant to stay. They were just meant to put their coats on and bugger off. Um, but everybody ended up staying and clapping and singing along. And um, again, it was a reaction that we wasn't expecting. Yeah. So just to just to just to say, you know, we performed six songs. Uh, we've written a dozen songs for for the show, but we performed six songs on on the night. Because it wasn't meant to be a show, was yeah. it? It was meant to just be yeah. a reading, and it, it just it went, it went way beyond. It's lost a run of itself. Yeah, yeah. And, and the actors, you know, were started off sitting down, but they all started to move around and, and, and that really added to the piece. So the songs were performed by the cast um, uh, in the show. And um, we had our musical director, Brian Hughes, who was on the piano um, and he he worked, you know, with them and so on. And then Danny came on at the end because the level of emotion and excitement at the end, we do a, a, a kind of a... A, a, a song about Dublin at the end, which is a, a great chorus in it, or at least we think it's a great chorus. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we think it's okay. Um, but but following on from that, as people were were beginning to go, they kind of almost wanted more. And so Danny jumped up on the stage very spontaneously, and it just created the atmosphere. And how we're going to run with this show and how we'll do it is that I almost think each show is going to be different. Obviously, it's just the script. Obviously, they're the acts and the structure to it. But the reaction from the audience is what's going to drive this. And the actors at different points engage the audience. And uh, they, they so, so the audience are part of the show. And that, I think, is a great thing about uh, theatre when it works well, is if you can get the audience to come along the journey with you, and they feel safe to do so and they feel engaged to do so. That's fantastic. So all the cast in their own ways were able to engage the audience and, and reach out. To and them they was ad-libbing as well. I kept saying, yeah. is that ad-lib? Yeah. Was that in, and he's like, yeah. they're loving it. And the more they ad-libbed, the more the audience it, responded it, it, and the more laughs. And it was just, it was It, it, it was tremendous. really, it was very special. And we're okay with that. You know, we're not slavish. We have a script. We have everything laid out. But actors need a certain amount of room um, to 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 engage and to play with the piece and everything else. And actually, that's the big part of it that we love. Uh, we found that in our Oscar Wilde play, by the time the tour was coming towards its final phase, the actors were just playing with the, with the, with the script and playing with the audience. And when you reach that, it's something very special happens because it takes on an extra dimension when when actors are playing uh, with a script and engage in the audience, so that's what happened uh, at the ICC, a night to remember. And of course, it was a very special night because it was the eighth of uh, February, which was the the eve of uh, his hundred year um, ago, his birth uh, on the ninth. So we were delighted with the reaction, and it's given us now the courage um, to to uh, to continue, crazy as it may seem. I suppose we should talk about the next steps because part of the reason you're talking to me is we want to get the word out there. We want people in Dubai where you leave previously here in Stockholm, in New York, in Glasgow, in Dublin or whatever to put this show on. What are the risks there? What do you have to do to turn this into a touring production? Would it be expensive to put on in another European city or in, in Melbourne or Sydney or wherever? Yeah, look, you know, uh, theatre... Theatre is is not cheap. You know, as the saying goes, how do you make a million pounds 
well, give me two million and put it into theatre. <laughs> and, um, and, and so, you know, we've funded everything so far and we've funded everything um, all along the way in our, in our writing and all the shows we have done. We've had no grants or art support. We're or getting whatever. bored of things on touch so, now, Philip. So we're, 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 yeah. So, so basically, to take the theatre forward, you do need the support. You need arts funding. Uh, you might need some angel investors. You need some people. But most of all, what you need is you need a great theatre. You need a theatre to work with you. You need people who are interested in your vision. You need people who get what you're trying to do. So as we look at different locations around the world, we're quite experienced now of, of doing tours and we know the economics of a tour and we know how to how to manage a tour. And so when we look at places like you, in your own uh, case in Stockholm, firstly, there's a natural connection. There's a, you know, Brendan Bean spent time there and there's an interest and there's a, a cultural connection and um, an international uh, connection. So we know that there will be audiences who want to hear that story. Uh, we have to find a great um, theatre that will host us and work with us and so on. Um, and then we need the funding um, to, uh, to, 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 to make that happen. And, you know, we're very firmly of the view that if you, if you have a, a, a great show and you have people around you, the funding will come. But obviously, you know, in, in taking it to different locations, there are the mechanics of, 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 of the financial mechanics. So we would love people who, if they feel there's an interest and if it's something they'd like to get involved with, make contact with us. We'd love to take the play, the show to Stockholm. We've, we've had invitations to take it to Paris. We've had invitations to take it to America. Um, and we've had, obviously, we want to take it to our, our hometown in Dublin as well um, and, and London. And it's we, like we've been invited to all these amazing yeah. events, but we've got no, we've got no, um, you know, nightwear, you know, we've got no, <laughs> we've got no gowns at the moment. So we've got, you know, we, the invitations that we've had are, are yeah. absolutely and incredible. We're, we're, we're obviously, we're obviously in discussions and, and part of this is that we want to strike while the iron's hot. You know, it is the hundred year of, of Brendan. It's, there's a hook there that people get onto, but we also know the life of this show will go beyond, you know, 2023. Um, there's there's a story to tell there. So we we're looking to connect with people who can help us bring the show, uh, who get the story that we're trying to tell. We will be our our first port of call is that we're trying to secure, and there are discussions going on now. Uh, a, a run in London, um, in a theatre in in you know in the centre of London, put the full show up. Uh, it's all ready to go. Um, and we have a great cast. We've got all the people behind the scenes who need to be there. And we hope that's going to raise profile and raise interest and will bring people from different places uh, to raise awareness. And if there's somebody out there in, in you know, Stockholm or in the Nordic countries, we would love to connect with you and talk about bringing the show. It's a great, great, powerful story that resonates today. And um, there are Irish people all over the world who who can help us uh, bring the show uh, around. And uh, we'd love to hear from them.
I hope now that by talking to me that we're going to find your Joan Littlewood, find the people who recognize the talent and the effort and everything that's gone into making this show and that they say, yes, I'm going to take this to Sydney and Melbourne and Stockholm and San Francisco and all these other places because be Jesus, as Irish people out there with plenty of money who can afford to do it as well. And not only that, but you also have the Arts Council. That I want to finish by asking you the two of you one particular question. After all this, after all the research, after all the writing, all the songs, rewriting the verse and the chorus and moving it from Act 2 to the start to the finish and back again, <laughs> who is Brendan Bean to you both now? He's um, a bollocks from a story. <laughs> <laughs> the man who keeps you awake at night, Danny. Big time. You know what? If he, was, if he was sitting in front of me now and I was asking him questions, he wouldn't be able to answer me. He'd go, oh, Jesus, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. He wouldn't be. I don't think he'd be able to actually genuinely give the answer. Do you know what I mean? I think he'd just say, listen, it was what it was. It is what it is. Um, and, you know, he just wants to create and he just wants to do his thing. And he's just you could just the more and more you learn about this man, the more and more you want to know. And the more and more you want to keep going in and starting analyzing his thought process. And some of it is is probably quite deep and and some of it that's probably seems to be deep is probably not that deep you know what I mean he was just probably having a few jars and he, he knocked up a bit of a script do you know what I mean and then, then there's other times when he probably put his absolute everything into it and you know he's like oh yeah so it's hard doesn't it it's yeah, hard to I get mean, into somebody's head I mean, for, for me for me he's someone that I'd love to sit down for an evening with and have a pint. It wouldn't be one pint, and, though, John, would it? No, it would be more than one <laughs> pint. And and it, it would be, what I'm saying is, he's an interesting person. He had something to say. He was educated. Uh, he had a worldview. He had a profound view. And he had flaws. And, you know, it's like we with Oscar Wilde and everything else and 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 the, and the next project that we're going to do. You want to ask people, why did you do that? I need to understand, <laughs> why did you do that? Um, you know, uh, what was in your mind when you did that? And I'd hope he'd give an answer. And I hope I'd learn something from him. Because they're the people that interest me. Uh, you know, what is he to me? They're the people that interest me, the people that I want to be around. And, you know, you reach a stage in your life, that's what you want. You want to learn from people. They know something you don't know. They have an insight that you don't have. And similarly, hopefully, I have things that I could offer them. And so Brendan is the fella that I would love to sit down and have a, 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 a beer with him and say, why did you do that? And to understand and share that experience. That, that, that's who he is to me. It's it's fascinating what you said there, because it was just as you were speaking, there, I was reminded of that line from Thousands Are Sailing by the Pogues and the blackbird broke the silence as you whistled it so sweet. And in Brendan Behan's footsteps, we danced up and down the street about being on Broadway. And I was, it, I was envisioning this play or this show that you've written on Broadway. And as you were speaking there, John, I was thinking that, you know, you'd love to ask him, why did you do these things? But the more I listen to, to you both and the more I listen to the beautiful songs that Danny has written and what Brendan himself has written, and hopefully I'll get to see this show. It's not anymore about what Brendan can tell me about himself. It's what he keeps telling me about me. And this is what I want to see in your show. And I can't wait to see it at some time. And thank you so much to both of you for talking to me. Thank you very much, uh, Philip. Really enjoyed it. Great, great chat. Thank you. As long as I heard that sound, I knew we were safe. 
happy days before the fame. I knew he wasn't going to be an easy man to control, but I always thought I'll be the one to change him. I'll be the one to change him. From the theatre show, Brendan, son of Dublin. How could you not want to see that around the world when you've heard that beautiful music and that wonderful story by John and Danielle with uh, a little guest appearance there from their daughter, which I thought, you know what, I leave that in. It doesn't matter. It brings the humanity across, right? Um, That's about all we have time for for this week. I have an absolute dinger of an episode coming up next week, right? So it'll be in the wake of St. Patrick's Day, but there's also uh, the rugby will be going on and that kind of thing will be going on as well. So it's going to be very much of an interest to those who are into sport and that, but not just rugby, also American football. So those of you stateside, keep an ear out for this one. It's an absolutely amazing story of an Irish guy. Not going to tell you any more than that, right? Again, quick mention, patreon.com forward slash arrowmanandstock or if you're sitting on a million dollars or a billion dollars Elon Musk and you have, you want to finance podcasts like this hit me up philip at ablana.se and even if you can't do that right this is not about the money please share the podcast because we've been growing well over the last little while and it's going well but there's always a case of 
uh, you know, there's always people who don't know about it. And that, you know, if you think of anybody when you're listening to this who might be into the theatre or the arts or interested in the podcast about sport that's coming up next week, pass this one on to them. Say, look, I heard this fella talking about this subject. He's interviewing people, Irish people, people of Irish heritage around the world, things of interest to us as a global Irish community. It may even be interest to people, of, of interest to people back home as well, right? So please feel free to share the podcast. There's a few great super fans out there who are sharing it already. Become one of those lovely people because uh, the wider an audience we can meet the easier it is going to be for us to get hold of people and uh, to be able to interview them and to bring you even bigger and better stories and to have an even wider audience to share these things with because that's what it's all about at the end of the day lads and lassies it's about building a community and having a place that we can all gather around and having something to stick in our ears of a saturday or a sunday when we're out you know mowing the lawn or walking the dog or mowing the dog or walking the lawn or whatever it is we're doing right so uh, yeah that's about it for this week looking forward to next week's podcast already i hope you're doing well where you are you're looking forward to your st paddy's day and there'll be a few drinks and something nice to eat and a good bit of crack with family and friends and throw in a few tunes and say jesus how bad would you be until next time my friends look after yourselves look after one another and i'll talk to you again very very soon on the global gale podcast